Morning. Well, good morning to everybody here in the room. And if it's your first time here, welcome. So glad that you are here. And if you are streaming online, welcome and good morning. And for our uh, folks who speak Spanish listening on the headset, we see you and are glad that you're here as well. Um, I know you just sat down a few minutes ago, but if you would stand up with me for the reading of our main passage. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been in our Yet For Us series, uh, going through 1 Corinthians for like eight months now, and we'll continue to do so post-summer, going through 2 Corinthians as well. And this passage out of 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6 has been our kind of organizing passage. And so we're going to read it all together so you can read along with me. We'll come up on the screens. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is what I believe and what I stand on by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, the reason we stand is just to honor the Word of God. Uh, we, uh, we revere God, and we believe that He has spoken to us through His Word. So I'm going to pray one more time before I read our main text today out of 1 Corinthians 13, just that God's Word would come alive in our hearts. So, Father, we do humble ourselves before you. And we need you, God. We need you, Holy Spirit, to breathe on your word this morning and to cause it to come alive in our hearts, to bring about change, to transform us into the image of your Son, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I remember when I was uh, uh, about eight or nine, and actually, let me, let me read our full text before we jump straight in. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13 is going to come up on the screen here. You don't have to read along with me, uh, but we're admonished in the scriptures not to give up the public reading of scripture, so we're just going to do that right off the bat here. The whole, the whole passage says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. I do remember when I was, uh, I was about eight or nine and I came to my mom. I don't remember exactly what the circumstance was, but something was going on with me. And in her explanation to me of what was going on, she put her arm around me and she said, Mick, you're sensitive. And I was devastated. 
I thought that, I don't know why, but I thought that that was like a pronouncement of some terminal illness. I thought that it was like a brain tumor and that I was going to die. And so I didn't express that to her, but I was devastated. I went to school maybe that day or the next day, and I had a best friend named Casey, and I pulled him aside at one point, and I didn't know how to break it to him, you know? And so in tears, I pull him aside. I was like, Casey, I'm sensitive. And, and he had the wherewithal, even at eight years old, to know what that word meant. And he explained that I wasn't dying. It uh, just meant that I felt things deeply. And so fast forward to about seventh grade, uh, this, this child who feels things very deeply was fe- feeling things very deeply for three of the girls in my seventh grade uh, <laughs> class. And my mom and dad took me to South Africa uh, for something of like a coming of age trip. And while there, we got a bunch of postcards and I wanted to send some home. And so I sent some to a bunch of friends, but on three of those, I confessed my undying love and uh, wrote sappy, flowery kind of poetry to these three girls. Now, if I would have had a shred of foresight, I would have thought about the fact that they were all three good friends and would compare notes. And so I came home not to three swooning seventh grade girls, uh, but to three very angry friends, and it didn't work out with uh, one of them. Why do I tell that story? That's a silly story. But today the question is, what is love? Looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And this is a confusing topic. It's one of the most asked questions throughout time. What is love? What is the nature of it? And you don't have to look around for very long to find that we are obsessed as humans with love. Millions of songs, like every movie, books, poetry, billboards as we're driving down the highway, social media feeds, we are inundated with this topic And why is that? Mainly it's because we are created in the image of God. And God is love. It's his nature. He's not just loving. He is love. We're made in his image. So we have been made, every single person in this room, with both a tremendous capacity to receive love, but also a tremendous capacity to show or to demonstrate love. But if we're made in God's image, and this is a central part of the human experience, why is it so confusing? And not just confusing, but painful. But if we were to go around the room, it wouldn't take long before we heard some tremendous stories of pain, heartache, betrayal by the ones who were closest to us, the ones that we loved and made ourselves vulnerable to. But I know that every person in this room, regardless of how emotional, how sensitive you are or are not, you were made both to be love and to demonstrate love. But there's a lot of pain, a lot of confusion surrounding it. So how do we straighten it all out? We're not going to untangle all the knots this morning, but I do want to look at this passage in depth. I think Paul gives us some clues as to how we can move forward as followers of Jesus, demonstrating his love. He gives, if not a definition, then at least a description. And this chapter, chapter 13, known as the love chapter, probably most often you've heard this read at weddings. Uh, I actually did a wedding this morning, if you can believe that. It was a sunrise wedding at Lake Whitney at 7 a.m. It was something. Um, but, you know, this is the theme, right? You see this at weddings. But Paul didn't write this verse, this chapter, just for weddings. He didn't write it just for bumper stickers or picture frames either. Actually, he wrote chapter 13, right smack dab in the middle of chapters 12 and 14. It's a profound thought for you. And what's happening in chapters 12 and 14, which we've been going through at length this spring, is he's writing to the church who have become, a church that's become divided over the issues of the spiritual gifts, the practice of tongues and prophecy. 
And he's addressing that division. In fact, that's the occasion for this entire letter are these divisions that are ripping the church apart at the seams. Now, we may not be divided over tongues and prophecy necessarily, but I would argue that we are the Corinthian church today, just as divided as the first century church was. If not tongues and prophecy, then maybe vaccines. You didn't have to laugh at that. It wasn't supposed to be a joke, but uh, yeah. It's like, ah, there was some knowing laughter there. Vaccines, politics, social issues, right? We have deep divisions in the body of Christ today. So I would argue this passage of Scripture is as relevant to us within this context as it was to the, first, uh, to the church in uh, Corinth. Okay, he's going to jump in right here, verse 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, again, this is the context. He's addressing a specific issue. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and that's the gift of faith, not just not saving faith, but the gift of faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He ups the ante. If I give away all I have, maybe thinking back to the church in Jerusalem, and deliver up my body to be burned, maybe a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, is he saying these things are in and of themselves wrong? Of course not. The scriptures hold these up as, as to be modeled. And he'll say right at the beginning of chapter 14, to eagerly desire the greater gifts, especially that you prophesy. But what he's getting at here is not the external actions. He's addressing the internal motive of the heart. He's saying that as believers, God is more concerned with our motivations than our exterior spiritual activities. Now, this is going to sound familiar to Jesus in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says, On that day, speaking of the day of judgment at the end of time, many will come to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, but this should be a sobering verse. I would look at somebody walking around Waco, Texas, casting out demons and prophesying and doing many mighty works in, in Jesus' name as a godly person. And yet Jesus says that it's not just mere external appearances, but he's going to judge based on the motivation of the heart. Was this performed? Was this done out of a love relationship, loving obedience to Jesus? And that should cause us all to pause for a moment and reflect, and this is what Paul's addressing here to the church in Corinth. Now, he's talking about love in place of relationship, but they're interchangeable, one and the same. So what does the motive of love look like? Paul unpacks this a little bit in a different letter to a different church, Philippians 2, 1 through 5. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Everybody say this with me. Do nothing from. Say it again. Do nothing from. This is a key phrase indicating motivation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you're looking for the core of Christian love, this, this sentence is it. This is at the very center, the very heart of what it means to love like Jesus. This is God's love. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
He says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Praise God. This is the way Jesus is, thinks, operates, and he has given us his mind by his spirit to enable us to walk in the way that he walks. So again, Paul's point in these first three verses is that love first has to do with motive and that the motive is specifically a relational motive that seeks the benefit of other people. And we'll set this in contrast to worldly love here in just a little bit. Now, the Holy Spirit is really good at convicting us along these lines if we will kind of clue in and listen to him. Uh, just this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I had to sift through my own motives. I'm just going to be completely honest with you guys. But part of my motive this week, as I was putting this together, was I want you to think that this was a good sermon. I want to be liked, right? This is the, the message that breaks the internet and just goes viral, right? Like, I, I want to do a good job. I want people to walk out of here thinking, man, he, he hit the ball out of the park. I said this in the first service, and like 12 people came up to me afterwards, like, we like you. I was like, I, I wasn't fishing. <laughs> I'm saying that just, I, I, maybe I'm alone in this. I don't know if you guys ever have thoughts like this, but I, thank you, Jimmy. So I had, I had to sift through that and actually confess that and repent because this is a gift. The teaching gift is to serve the body. The reason that I'm up here this morning is to equip the saints, you guys, for the work of ministry. The whole reason that I preach is to empower you to walk in the way of Jesus. This is an act of service and ultimately to God and to his People, but I had to sift that through. And we could go through just about any area of our lives and address motivations. Right? If you work out in here, why do you exercise? Is it just to look good and cause others to desire you or envy you? Or is it because you find enjoyment God made you to exercise and it's a service to other people? At my age, uh, the hair gives me away. I, I want to stay healthy enough to serve my kids and grandkids. Why do you discipline your children? Is it just to maintain peace in the house because you're stressed out? Or is it because it's in their best interest and you're developing them and raising them up in a way that honors Jesus? Why do you conduct your business the way that you do? Is it just profit motive? Or is it to serve your employees and to serve the broader community? Why do you have a medical practice? Why do we go to class and study? And this is an invitation Paul is giving us to analyze, evaluate what's the motive. The, the terrifying thought here is that we could come to the end of our lives and realize that our activities, even though they might have appeared godly on the outside, were wrongly motivated. And Paul says it will be counted as nothing. So he builds on this in the next several verses, and he begins to describe Christian love in more detail, and he gives these sets of kind of positive and negative descriptors, beginning at verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Now, if you know uh, the, the New Testament, you know this is, these are two of the fruits of the Spirit. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list. Uh, he's addressing a specific set of circumstances at the church in Corinth. He says, love is patient and kind. And if you know Galatians 5, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think love is listed first because the other eight fruits of the Spirit define and describe love. And so Paul here, I think what, part of what he's saying by listing these fruits of the Spirit is to say that, by the way, to love people and to love God in the way that Jesus loves people and his Father 
is impossible in your own strength. We are bent towards selfishness in our sinful nature. Even after we've been redeemed, the process of sanctification is one of learning to bend towards God and others and not just self. This requires walking with the Holy Spirit, period. Your will, your good intentions will only carry you so far. At the end of the day, this is a supernatural kind of love. He goes on in verse 4. He says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Basically, we could summarize this list as saying that love prioritizes others above self. We just talked about this from Philippians 2. And again, this is set in contrast to what is held up in our culture, which is very self-promoting. But here, Paul is saying, no, 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 put others before yourself. And we're not talking about complete ascetic self-denial. This is not just becoming a doormat, letting other people ride over you. This is about prioritizing God and others. And the irony is that as we do so, we actually find deeper self-fulfillment and the highest form of self-preservation. In that, Jesus said it this way, if you seek to save your life, you will what? You'll lose it. But if you lose yourself for my sake and the gospels, you will find it. You will actually save it. The wisdom of God. He goes on, verse 6, he says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Now, this is a big one for our culture and kind of time period today because there's a current in our culture that says, in order to love me, you have to affirm my behaviors and the way I think, whether or not they align with Scripture. Anybody ever come across kind of this conundrum? I don't know how to be loving in this context. But God, God, the Holy Spirit, through Paul here, is saying, no, 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 love actually rejoices with the truth. It does not rejoice with wrongdoing. Jesus says in uh, John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Anybody want to be free? In our hearts, in our minds, in our emotions, then Scripture teaches that we need truth in order to be free. And it's actually loving to speak the truth to one another, to rejoice in the truth, to affirm the truth. And it's destructive to rejoice in wrongdoing, even if it's being demanded of us. It says, no, this is loving. No, actually, it's loving to rejoice in the truth. The truth needs to become a joy to us as a people if we're going to thrive in God and become all that God has called us to be. I am grateful that I am in a community of people who speak the truth in love. I was, as I was preparing this, I was thinking back. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 16 years, but it almost didn't happen. Uh, we dated for a year, and then we broke up. And in my, again, this confused what is love state, I thought, well, I, I, I miss her. I want to pursue her again. And so uh, I called Jimmy and said, hey, can we hang out? This is however many years ago now, 17 years ago. Um, we went to Walmart because he needed to buy a bike for one of his daughters. And I can still remember the exact spot in Walmart uh, on Franklin as we're walking. And I said, Jimmy, I think I want to pursue Steph again. And he stopped and he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, okay, I'm about to say something that might be kind of hard to hear, but we'll work through it. I thought, it's not what I expected. He said, if Steph was my daughter, I wouldn't let you get within 20 feet of her. And then kept walking towards the bike aisle. I was like, okay. And he, began, he continued to unpack, listen, you just dated for a year, you broke up with her, you devastated her, you broke her heart. 
And you seem still kind of uncertain and you just kind of want to waltz back into this relationship without any kind of clarity and potentially break her heart all over again. Uh, you need to get your act together. If you want to marry this girl, marry her. If not, you need to go another direction. And so did some soul searching, realized I want to marry this girl. Asked her back out, proposed three days later. We got married three months later. It's a story for another time. Thank you, Jimmy. We need, we need truth. I need truth. My wife and I, we need you to speak the truth and love to us. Parenting is like off limits in our culture to give advice. I need parenting advice. Many of you serve in the kids' ministry with my children. Please speak the truth in love to me. Help me raise them in a godly manner. Our finances are an open book. Steph and I, you can know every purchase we make. And if you see something that's out of alignment with the way of God, please help me. Help us walk in the way of Jesus. And, and I would challenge you this week even with your life group, with a couple of friends, because people won't speak the truth and love to you or, or, or less prone to if there are walls up. We need to invite this type of, we need to be open to this type of feedback. And so I'd encourage you, pull a couple of friends together. Hey, where are a couple areas I'm doing well and where are a couple areas I could grow? And I guarantee you, they'll probably have a couple in mind just looking for an open door. Now, the key here, of course, is speaking the truth in love. The motive for sharing the truth with one another is not just to get something off our chest, put them down. The motive is to build them up into all that they are created to be. This might require going to God first in prayer to deal with the offense, to deal with the, the frustration, the way they bug you, but get to a place where we are for one another. And this has tremendous complexity and nuance. I'm not saying this is straightforward, right? There could be a situation right now, you might have a family member who's a drug addict, what does it look like to love them with truth, right? There's complexity. This requires community. This requires prayer and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. But we can't shy away from the commission and the call to speak the truth in love to one another. This is the way of Jesus. Again, 1 John 2, 6, we read it a couple weeks ago. John says, if we claim to, walk, to be in Christ, then we are are to walk in the same way in which he walked. And if you look at his life, he did not mince words. He was both, he was full of uh, grace and truth, John says in John 1. Both and, extremely compassionate and tender, and calling people up into the way of God. Paul goes on in verse 7, he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, there's a bit of overstatement here. Uh, Paul is using a rhetorical device to make a point because obviously there are times when you don't need to endure abuse, for instance. But he's talking about a posture of the heart. And maybe a helpful way to frame this verse is to think, and I really want you to call to mind right now, who is the hardest person for you to love? Right? Just, just kind of get a name or a face in your mind. I heard a leader in the body of Christ one time say that the degree to which we love that person, the one who's hardest to love, is the actual degree to which we love God. Say it again. The, the degree to which we love, the hardest person for us to love is the, a measure of the, the, the degree to which we actually love God. And, and what he was saying, he was referring to teaching of Jesus, says, you, you know, you love those who love you. That's great. Even, even the pagans do that, but love your enemy. Love those who persecute you, who cause you pain. And so he gives a couple of descriptions here. He talks about bearing all things. That's a word that kind of has this, this connotation of, if you think of like a vessel that's under tremendous pressure, like a watertight vessel, 
and it, it keeps from exploding. And that's the sense here is that you don't explode in anger on those around you. You bear all things and channel that to God. The Psalm's a great portrait of that, the way that David would do that. Believes and hopes all things. There might be a time for boundaries. You might need to step away from a relationship, but still the motive of the heart, at least according to the scriptures, is a posture that still believes the best for this person. Is still hoping that there's reconciliation and restoration, even if there has to be physical distance. That's something only that could happen between you and God for you to wrestle that through. And endures all things. There's longevity uh, to our love. We could summarize these last few verses just to say that Jesus is, in front of all of these different descriptions, Jesus is loving, patient. He is kind. He is not envious or boastful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he does rejoice with the truth. Jesus is one who bears all things, believes all things, and so on. Paul goes on in verses 8 through 10. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. He's talking about at the end of time uh, when Jesus returns. We see that in the next several verses. It says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, i.e. Jesus, the partial will pass away. He's saying at the, at the end of time, tongues and prophecy will cease to exist, so they can't be what we pursue primarily, that love is actually the greater measure of our spirituality. And that leads right into verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's using this metaphor Again, to reinforce that spirituality based on these external actions is an immature spirituality. But actually, as we grow in maturity, we, we grow into the way of Jesus, which is a love motivation that seeks the benefit of others, is not self-promoting. This is not a new concept. There's a great quote from the fourth century, a lady named Macrina, the daughter of Basil the Elder. She said it this way, love is first among all the activities connected with virtue and all the commandments of the law. If therefore the soul ever attains this love, it will need none of the others. That's that idea that love is the embodiment of all the other fruits of the spirit. Having reached the fullness of its being, it seems that love alone uh, preserves in itself the character of the divine blessedness. And knowledge becomes love because what is known is by nature beautiful. Okay, as we've done uh, last couple times that I've spoken, we're gonna pause here. This is your moment of participation. You don't come just to kind of sit passively and let me ramble on up here and flap my gums. So you're going to turn to somebody next to you, uh, or if you're at home, uh, whoever's sitting next to you on the couch, and just for 30 seconds here, what is standing out to you so far? What's God speaking to you so far through this message? So this is your moment of participation. 30 seconds, turn to somebody, ready, go. more seconds.
All right. So, gone through 11 verses. Paul has been building to something of a crescendo here in verse 12. If you clue in anywhere, I want you to clue in on that that central thought that Christian love is self-sacrificing. It seeks the benefit of others. And I want you to clue in here on this verse as well. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What he's saying here, a mirror dimly, that's a reference to the fact that at that time, they, their mirrors were this polished metal, uh, not like our mirrors today. So you got kind of a dim reflection of yourself in a mirror. And he's saying that our knowledge of God right now is just blurry. It's distorted through the, 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 the pain, the separation, the distance of sin. But one day we will see him face to face and we will see him in the way that we are now fully known by God. Like, he sees us perfectly. We see him dimly. He sees us perfectly. He sees your motives. He sees your actions, your speech. He sees the the internal workings of your heart, your soul. He sees all of that. And one day we will see him in like manner. We won't know in the way that God knows, but we will know face-to-face what God is like. And Paul builds to this because I think part of what he's saying is when we see him face-to-face, it will all have been worth it. Narrowing our lives, loving the way that he loves, which is not just hard, it's impossible, will be worth it when we see him. Now, what will we see? I don't know fully, but we get glimpses in the scriptures. I think on the one hand, we will see a God who is terrifying to behold, magnificent. You see these different depictions in Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation where there's thunder and lightning and power and glory emanating from, from God's person and the throne. And it's, it's terrifying. People in the scriptures fall down as though dead. It's, it's electrifying. And, and people are in awe. And there's wonder. And there's fear, healthy, holy fear. At the same time, we're going to see his face. And we're going to see a God who stepped out of this perfection, this the state of, he's always holy, but this state of glory stepped across the chasm into our space, was born of a virgin, walked in our shoes, experienced the pain and the frustration that we experience as humans, went to the cross, just right before the service, Ernesto came up to me and said, the cross is the portrait of love. You can't talk about love without talking about the cross, to see God, this holy cosmic God that measures the universe in the span of his hand stretched out on a Roman instrument of torture and execution to step into our place, to see the look on his face, a look of tremendous compassion. I think of Bartimaeus, who was in all likelihood born blind, and the very first thing that his physical eyes ever saw was the face of Jesus. And not just the face, but what are we drawn to when we look at somebody's face? Their eyes. And I know we've kind of done little meditations on this in the past, but just for a moment, your Bartimaeus, what what does his face look like? What did Jesus' eyes communicate when Bartimaeus saw him for the first time? Disgust? Boredom? No, I think we know intuitively, at least those who've looked at the scriptures, there was tremendous compassion 
joy, anticipation, engagement in the face of Jesus, in the eyes of Jesus. Bartimaeus had done nothing to deserve that. He was created by God to intersect with God in this moment, and and I believe what he saw changed his life. In fact, it says immediately he went to follow Jesus. I think there were little crow's feet in the corners of Jesus' eyes from smiling so much. Look of tremendous compassion on his face. And this is the face we'll see, this juxtaposition of power and glory with compassion and tenderness and forgiveness. This is the face that looked down from the cross at the very Romans who were murdering him and said, Father, forgive them. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time forgiving. My son punched me yesterday, and I wanted to punch him back. Like, I, he's 11, just being real. Jesus is being murdered, and he looks down. He's God. He, he is holy. He is in this other camp. He looks down and forgives the very ones who are murdering him. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Now, if God, in his perfection, in his holiness, can extend that kind of love and compassion and mercy to us, who are infinitely more fallen and shameful than God himself, then how much more can we extend the same mercy and forgiveness to one another? And I'm not minimizing what people have done to you. Again, we could hear horrific stories this morning across the room. What I am humbly submitting to you is that it still pales in comparison to the gulf between us and God. And I think Paul is saying, this is what we're going to see. So see it now by the Holy Spirit. Be compelled by the love of God. Be empowered by the love of God to love your neighbor as yourself. He ends in verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we look forward with great hope and anticipation. We actually believe. We just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. That's an actual belief among the Christian church that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, ascended to the Father, and will return bodily for his church. We've set our hope and our expectation on that. And we believe by faith. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit to actually believe something we can't see. We have good evidence for, but we can't see it and prove it. But here Paul says, yes, these are pivotal to the Christian experience, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because when Jesus returns, we won't need faith anymore. We'll see with our own eyes. We won't need hope. We'll have realized our hope, but love remains. Love is the eternal virtue between us and God and one another forever. Now, another way to look at this, C.S. Lewis wrestled with this, if you're familiar with his writings, and he wrote a book called The Four Loves because it's such a confusing topic. Because we use that word interchangeably, I love ice cream, I love my spouse. Well, which is it? What's love? Well, actually, the Greeks had four different words for love. And we'll tie this in to look at what, what is this godly love? Well, the first word, and this is mainly what we've been talking about, is this word agape. If you've been in church circles before, you've seen or heard this word before. This is unconditional love, the kind of love that that outlasts changing circumstances. This is God's love towards us, what we've been talking about. Now, I, I love my wife and she loves me, but we haven't always felt in love, right? Many days, it's a choice, more so on her end than mine. Many days, I do not deserve love but she continues to choose to give it. 
right? I put my foot in my mouth. I forget to do something or worse. I, you know, I, I intentionally sin in some way. And she chooses over and over and over again to love and to seek my highest good. This is agape love. The next is phileo love. This is a Greek word that talks about kind of brotherhood, a love between friends. It's freely chosen. The example here is just simply the bond of friendship. Think maybe uh, David and Jonathan in the scriptures. The next is storge. Now this is a familial, tender love. You think of the love between a mother and her baby. A bonded love. And the last is eros. And this is that sense of being in love. This is the actual feeling, that fire, that spark that arouses passion and culminates uh, sexually. So be the love that a man or woman has for their spouse. Now, the reason I go through this briefly is to put up a diagram here to show two trees. And on the left is God's intention for love. This healthy, flourishing, relational tree that has at its root agape love, which is self-sacrificing, which seeks the benefit of other people. The idea is that as we lay down our lives for one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so, it gives rise to friendship. Friendship gives rise to this this, uh, bonded uh, love, this storge love that's familial, that's tender. And in the case of, of a marriage relationship, it gives rise to that romantic passion, the eros. Now, what the world does is flip that on its head. It starts with eros. It starts with the, the fire, the feeling of being in love. In fact, uh, I looked at several dictionaries, and they mainly talk about the feeling of love. And what they're talking about here is that eros, that, that we were created for, but not as the driving piece. And the hope is that as we give ourselves to these passions, it gives rise to bonded uh, security, like that familial security, it's tender. And the hope then is that gives rise to friendship. And the ultimate hope is some measure of commitment that transcends time. But I won't do a show of hands, but who knows, that doesn't work. <laughs> to root our relational tree in feelings of love is bound to fail in time. At a minimum, it's, it's going to fail to demonstrate the love of God to a world that needs to know his love so desperately. At worst, it's going to result in probably uh, many of the stories that we could all share in here. All of us want friendship, tender, bonded relationships. The only way to get there, at least according to the scriptures, you don't have to believe me, search it out yourself and just look at humanity. I believe, is agape love, which is self-sacrificing, which says, I want the best for you, not just the best for me. This leads us to a definition of sorts. Borrowing this from John Piper, tweaked it a little bit, that love is a divine choice characterized by sacrifice in pursuit of another person's good. Love is a divine choice. It's divine because it requires the Holy Spirit because we simply can't love in this way in our own strength. It's a choice. It's not just a feeling. It's characterized by sacrifice in pursuit of another person's good. Now, no one can do this perfectly, but we need a benchmark, something to hold up against what's in the water of our culture. Uh, In preparation, I had like six quotes from different celebrities which say like the exact opposite of that. 
the water that we're swimming in prioritizes self. It's all about self-fulfillment. And as soon as a relationship doesn't serve that end, you have permission to move on. And that relational carousel keeps going on and on. And that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, again, is self-sacrificing and lays down our lives for other people. So what, what Paul is saying here is that not everyone will prophesy, not everyone will speak in tongues, but everyone can love in the way that Jesus loves by the power of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, this is the mark of the disciple of Jesus. Jesus said what? The world will know you're my disciples by the way you love, not the way you prophesy, not your, how consistent you are in your quiet time, not your bumper stickers, and so on. The world will know you're my disciples by this kind of love. Do you lay down your life for your spouse and your kids, for your roommates, for your coworkers? Let them go first, celebrate when they get promoted over you. This is the kind of thing that marks the disciple of Jesus. So the question this morning, we'll even put one up on the screen. The question is, where do you need to align with God's love this week? Where have you gotten out of alignment? And this is like, yeah, you can take a screenshot of it. This is your ride home question. This is your uh, donut shop question or lunch, wherever you're, whatever you're doing after this. This is the self-reflection where we actually grow. God, search my heart. Where do I need to grow and align with your vision of love? Where has it gotten turned in on itself and become all about me? Well, you might be uh, overwhelmed by this point in the message, and actually you should be. <laughs> Because this is impossible, I've said it multiple times, and it requires an ongoing dependency on the Holy Spirit. And so the challenge to you, not just to reflect on this question, but the challenge to you is, I would imagine sometime today even, or certainly sometime this week, you're going to have an opportunity to exercise this kind of love. You might be in conflict right now with the person sitting next to you. you got, it's like this demonic assignment to get into conflict on the way to church service. And you're going to have an opportunity here in like 10 minutes or maybe later today or this week. But the challenge is to check in and just to ask God for help. God, help me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit right now. Help me to love the way that you love. Help me to own up for my portion. And I know your portion is only like 1% of the brokenness of the relationship. But own up for that 1%. Without demanding, they own up for the 99%. You're responsible before God ultimately, and so are they. So put them on God's hook and get right with God yourself and take steps towards making a relationship bridge. And I just, I want to close with just, can you imagine if we all walked in this kind of love? <laughs> yeah, not perfectly, but moving together as a community, receiving the love of God ourselves every morning, Day by day, depending on the Holy Spirit to elevate, to prioritize the people around us, our marriages, our kids, our business places. This is what the world is chasing after. All those songs. This is, the, this is what the world wants and needs. And there are dead ends at every turn, those dead relational trees. It's the body of Christ that has the answer. <laughs> we can hold up a portrait of what God's, what God's love looks like in the way that we love one another and give people a place to come with their pain and with their questions. As we close, I, I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, just to close your eyes. You don't have to do this, but it just helps, helps us focus. Because at the end of the day, we can't give what we haven't first received. And just in prayer and preparation, I felt like God wanted me to carve out just this couple minutes here 
and believe, really believe that he'll open our eyes afresh to see his love. It becomes kind of a worn out maxim, God loves you, but really he loves you. And there's a story in John chapter eight where there's a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. And I just, I wanna invite you for a moment to exercise your imagination and you are her, whether you're male, female, just insert yourself into her circumstance for a moment. And we don't know what led up to, you know, the brokenness in her life, uh, that led her to that, but she's in the, the very act of adultery. She's caught, she's dragged. We don't know if she had time to be clothed. She's dragged out into a public place, thrown into the middle of a circle of angry men. Just, just try to imagine that for a moment. Some of you might feel that level of shame this morning. Most of us will have to use our imaginations. What was she feeling? The embarrassment, the shock, the shame, the fear. These men had rocks in their hands. They wanted to stone her to death. And there's this general uproar and you hear them kind of drag this other man into the conversation. And and then this man kneels down into the dirt some distance away from you and all these angry eyes are suddenly diverted from you and they're on this man. You feel covered for a moment. You can't look up, but you hear a voice say, he who's without sin, be the first to cast a stone. Slowly you feel and hear the thuds in the dirt, the rocks dropping, the accusers slowly drifting away. Suddenly there's only one person left and he kind of lifts up your chin. He doesn't look at your body. He looks into your eyes and there's that face again those smiling eyes. There's pain. He hates what the situation that you're in, but there's tremendous love and compassion. He says, where are your accusers? Say, they've left. He says, well, neither then do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. It's an empowering love. You can open your eyes. Just stand with me. Our prayer teams, come on down to the front. All across the room, we need to receive the love of God. If you're here this morning and that's you, we wanna put a hand on your shoulder and just pray that God would open your eyes to see his love, to see his face. In the midst of your failure, in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your sin, God loves you and he wants to put his hand on your shoulder this morning. And secondly, we all have difficult relationships. If there's one in particular where you need breakthrough, you need the power of the Holy Spirit, likewise, we wanna pray for you. These are our two points of response. If you need the love of God this morning, you can just start coming right now. If you just want somebody to put a hand on your shoulder, I need a revelation of God's love. And or you have a a relationship, you need a breakthrough. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. We wanna pray for that. So we're gonna sing one last song in response, but you just start coming and we wanna pray for you that God would fill you with His Holy Spirit.